Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Throughout this series that we call The Full Scope of Audiology, we've learned about a wide variety of roles an audiologist can play and how our clinical skills can adapt to work in situations we may not have ever considered before. As clinical scientists, one of the first things we learn about is research, how it is established, conducted, and peer-reviewed. It's critical that we understand how to navigate the unending world of literature to perform evidence-based practice. But where do audiologists fit into this picture besides just understanding and implementing research? Can we be the ones conducting it? Today's guest is going to tell us all that and more. Dr. Emily Spitzer is a research assistant professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. She received her doctorate in audiology from the University of North Carolina and her Bachelor of Sciences degree from Northwestern University. Emily's research focuses on improving outcomes for children and adults with cochlear implants, specifically for musicians and those with residual hearing. Just a couple of financial disclosures. I'm the host of On the Ear and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and Dr. Spitzer received compensation for this presentation from speechtherapypd.com. Emily, I'm so glad you're here. You have such an amazing resume and also the research that you do is really relevant because I primarily work with cochlear implants. And so hopefully we have some time to get into that today, but I know we're mostly talking about research. So I'm glad you're here and we can talk about this. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. So we connected because I had this idea to kind of talk about the It's not really fair to say like lesser known, but maybe the less understood aspects of audiology. We've talked about like interoperative neuromonitoring, working with animals. And I feel like one of the most, those are pretty rare subcategories. But what's not so rare to me is this idea of working in research as an audiologist. I know from people that I've met, depending on your AUD program, it might be either really research heavy or not so research heavy, but both of them in some way require some research component just as the doctoral degree, right? So, for my program, I had to complete a dissertation. I'll be honest, not my favorite thing in the world. I'm curious, were you 
like on track always to go into clinical audiology? Did you know you wanted to do research at, a, at an early point in your AUD journey? How did you get involved in the research world? Yeah, it's actually a funny story. I was at Northwestern as an undergrad, and I uh, basically needed a summer job. And I uh, happened to get one in an audiology research lab. I had been sort of on a pre-med track and, and thinking about going to medical school or doing something more kind of like bench science based. But I found that in my early science classes, A, I just really didn't like them. But B, I, I was really kind of like missing the human component of it. And so I happened to get this lab job where I was able to work with kids and work with adults doing essentially ABRs is, is what it was, ABRs and, and speech testing and cognitive testing and all this type of thing um, in Dr. Nina Krause's lab. And so I worked there over the summer and I really loved it. And I ended up staying, um, this was the summer after my freshman year, I ended up staying there through the rest of undergrad. And when it came time to graduate and sort of think about what was doing next, I was considering whether I wanted to do a PhD or whether I wanted to do an AUD. And I really spent a lot of time thinking about both. What led me ultimately to doing an AUD is that I felt like, again, my favorite parts of that job were getting to, to work with the kids and work with the adults, work with the people, you know, and, and explain to the people to the children and to the parents, like how, what we were doing, you know, and, and how, how the results might affect their child and what we were finding and, and all of these types of things. Um, and I got to be involved in a lot of really cool projects. Like um, we did a project in Los Angeles where we went out there for three weeks a year for several years. And we tested a bunch of kids who were going through music training elementary schoolers and, and middle schoolers. And they, um, we were looking to see if music training like through an ensemble and orchestra was able to affect their, their brain. If we, we could see differences in their ABRs and, and differences in, in their cognitive abilities. And so that was really fun. And I really liked that. Ultimately, yeah, I decided to do a clinical degree because I found that that was really the aspect of audiology I was most drawn to. So I went and did an AUD at the University of North Carolina. And the whole time, you know, I, I loved my clinical training. I really liked that. But I kind of always felt drawn back into this research bug. You know, I always felt like I was missing something. And so pretty early on to that, I got involved in another lab at UNC with uh, Dr. John Gross doing more ABRs and psychoacoustics and things like that. And, and just really kind of always had a hand in research while I was in grad school as well. So when it came time to graduate and look for jobs, I was certainly open to a clinical job, but I kind of knew I was always going to prefer and, and want to try to get a research job. So that's how I ended up doing it. Interesting. Interesting. So really, really cool story on how you got there. I'm, I really want to get to at some point what the job prospects look like as someone who's coming right out of a clinical doctorate degree to go into research, because I know there are programs that are AUD, PhD, or people who just go straight from their AUD into a PhD. And I'm sure that those positions are more like you know, created for that kind of person with a primarily research background. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. I do want to talk about that in a little bit, though. But before that, before that, I'm curious. So what were the differences? You're in your classes that are primarily clinical. You're probably in a clinic rotation. And then you're spending time in the lab. 
what was really the difference other than that uh, aspect of like uh, direct patient care that you got from the clinical side of things? What was the research component that really drew you that was so different from your from your clinical side of training? You know, it's a really different type of person almost who's drawn to research versus clinical. I've found at least in, in terms of who would make a good research audiologist. In my lab experience, what, what I think I really loved about it the most is that you just had the freedom to play around. Like anytime we had an idea or we wanted to try something, we just had the freedom and the time to do it. Whereas in clinic, everything is so regimented and so, you know, on a schedule and so heavily protocol based. It's not, you don't get as much room to to explore and to to play with science as, as you do in a lab. And I, I think that's at least for me, what originally drew me to science in the first place was, was this idea of experimentation. And I also think that in research, one of the things I really love is that there's a, a long process to it. You know, in, in clinic, you often see a patient and then you either never see them again, or you're maybe seeing them once every few months. Whereas in research, you get to kind of take things all the way from this original design stage through data collection and, and experimentation and then into writing it up and presenting it. And at the end, you get to kind of have this finished product. And um, as silly as it sounds, like seeing your name on a page is is actually just like a wonderful feeling. I think those two things are really what primarily I love about research. Yeah. Could you tell, from, I mean, all the way back in those undergrad days when you were in that lab, were there any classes that you were, t- I guess you said you were maybe interested in more like the the bench science kind of career and then things shifted around a little bit, but was there anything that drew you? I'm trying to think because like my experience in the lab was very positive, but I didn't always really love the research classes. You know what I'm talking about? Like the kind of like the intro to research. This is how you, you know, read a paper and find research. I like to do those things, but the way that the classes were set up, I was like, this makes me think that this isn't for me. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think unfortunately, a lot of people get that idea that that research is really boring or that it's really difficult and they can't do it. Or I remember thinking early on that like, I really had no ideas. Like I had no idea how someone would come up with a research idea. I couldn't possibly think of anything that hadn't already been tried that, you know, my breadth of knowledge was just so small at the time that it seemed really daunting. I think a lot of people get really intimidated by research. I think those classes don't help. So I don't know that I, I think I got lucky in that my first foray into it was through a lab experience and not a class experience. But I could certainly see how a lot of people get turned off from research by being in those classes. I kind of do too, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe we just need to be thinking about how we're teaching students about research and, you know, really pointing out some of the more positives. And I mean, I guess, I guess just given, I think you're so right too. I, I had the same feeling when I was in those classes, like I couldn't come up with a question this complex that could actually help people, you know, like how could I, but like just giving students that space to be creative and have opportunities to start thinking that way, I think could really inspire them. That's a great point. Yeah. And I get it. Like it's, it's very difficult to teach research skills in the short amount of time that you have and also to to be able to give somebody that experience of of seeing an experiment through all the way I mean that can take years so obviously if if you're an audiology student who only has a semester they have to come up with something so I get that it's a difficult problem but I wish there was a better way to do it Definitely. When you were in your clinical time, I mean, I guess I'm so excited to ask you, this is one of the biggest questions I was hoping to ask you. When you compare your time in clinic 
to your time in a research setting, what do you feel like some of the biggest skills that you had clinically or that you were taught clinically that carried over well into that research setting? Well, I mean, on a really basic level, a lot of the research I do requires me to be an audiologist, you know, cochlear implant programming or um, audiometric testing, speech testing, things like that. So there's certainly just some basic clinical skills that I have to use in my research. But I think on a more general level, knowing how to relate to a patient really is is kind of the, the biggest thing. When you see someone for research, uh, so, you know, human subjects research, obviously there's audiologists who do animal research too, which is a whole other ballgame. You know, for, for human subjects research, in, in a lot of ways, it, it functions a lot like a clinical appointment, right? They're coming in, they have a hearing loss, I'm asking them to do something. And, you know, I have to be able to provide feedback on how they're doing. And, and I have to keep them engaged and, and wanting to do it. They're volunteering, they usually do get paid a, a minimal amount, but essentially, it's volunteer. And so, I think being able to talk to patients about their hearing loss, being able to um, understand their their issues, you know, just that that counseling aspect of audiology is actually really important in research too. A lot of my research subjects, I think, really enjoy coming in for research studies because I actually have a lot more time than a clinical audiologist does with them. Often, I will see them for a whole afternoon or sometimes even a whole day, and so you know, we have time to sit there and get into all of the nitty gritty details about what they like and don't like about their implant, for example, um, where a clinical audiologist is kind of like in and out the door. Sure, sure. That's a really, really great point. I also see the connection too between like the personality it takes to maintain an appointment and, you know, like keep a patient engaged, especially when it comes to working with kids. And then also um, like when you go to see a talk at a conference and it's a research presentation and somebody who's primarily in research and they just like really have great, you know, enthusiasm and engage well with the crowd. I can definitely see how those kind of like personality skills also play off of each other well. And, and yeah, that's such a great point. I guess it's so hard. It's sometimes it's hard to remember that like the people doing research are also doing the exact same things I do a lot of the time. Like when it comes to data collection, there's a ton of crossover there. And that's a really valuable skill set. I guess as we get, you know, later into like people who are interested in pursuing something related to research, you really, all of those things you described are really a lot of the skills that people are utilizing every single day. Where did you feel like you had the biggest gaps to fill in once you started in a research role where you're primarily, you know, clinical background, you weren't quite ready yet? That's a good question. Probably in terms of like study design and protocol writing and and things like that, actually thinking through both ideas for studies, but also the logistics of how a study is going to work. This is something that's a little bit unique to my position. Most, if not many research audiologists do not have any hand in study design or, or things like that. They just sort of are implementing studies that that someone else, like usually a PhD or the PI of the lab is coming up with. So this is kind of something I do that's a little bit unique, but that that was really difficult because I really didn't have a lot of training or really no training in in that type of things, kind of something I had to learn on the job. Same with like statistics and, and being able to make graphs and things like that. You know, that's not something I was really taught in my clinical program. So it's just something I've had to learn over time. Yeah, that's a great point. It actually leads me into one of my questions, which was, I know this isn't true because I've met multiple research audiologists now, but I feel like a common misconception is that you have to have a PhD 
to do research. Like those just two things go hand in hand. But I know that that's not true. You're a perfect example of that. I understand that having a PhD gives, that's where some of those foundational courses come from, right? Is in that kind of a program. So I'm curious, as someone who navigates that world daily, do you work with some audiologists who went strictly for PhD? Do you see a lot of research audiologists who are more, who have that clinical background? How do you see those two groups kind of like working together, you know, in terms of a research role? Yeah. Um, So, I mean, obviously I can only really speak to how my lab works, but in general, there's, there's basically three types of, of jobs. Uh, There's research audiologists, people like me who have um, just an AUD and essentially had clinical training. And maybe during their clinical training, they were in a lab or sometimes not even. I work with several research audiologists um, who didn't really even have any research experience prior to starting their job as a research audiologist out of school. So there's there's AUDs who do research or are involved in research, again, usually more on like an implementation side of things. And then there are people, PhDs, PhD researchers, who people are probably more familiar with. That's sort of your typical person who went from undergrad, got a PhD, is running a lab, applying for grants, that kind of thing. Typically, they're supervising the lab, supervising the the research audiologists, and then any students, undergrads, graduate students, that kind of thing. Um, And then there is also a subset of people who have both an AUD and a PhD. It's not very big. And those those people often function essentially like the people who have just PhDs. Um, They may sometimes have a little bit of clinic obligations, like they may sometimes work in clinic too. (laughs) Um, Or they may um, choose to to focus on research that's more clinically relevant than, than people who have just PhDs often do. There's not a lot of those people because obviously doing an AUD and a PhD, whether it's in a combined program or sequentially, is a lot of time and effort. Obviously, I wish there was there was more of them and it was easier to combine the two, but um, we can we can get into that more later. <laughs> yeah, I'm also curious. So I know you mentioned one of the things you really like is that clinical component that you get to bring to things in terms of just like patient care, just one of the reasons people like to go into audiology in the first place. I'm curious what about the research side really draws you in or what you really enjoy kind of in the day to day? You know, I love getting to play with data. Like I love getting to take a big um, data set of data we've collected over time, either prospectively. So so from patients that we see and have come in for and do experiments and things like that. Or actually, I also do a lot of what are called retrospective projects. So we go back and look at, at charts of patients who, in my case, have gotten cochlear implants over the years, and we look to see for patterns in the data and things like that. So I really like just having a whole big, <laughs> it sounds super nerdy, but just having a big Excel sheet and getting to, to play around with it and see, you know, what correlates with what else and and where the relationships lie and what you can kind of glean from the data. I really love that aspect of it. That's really cool. But I mean, be honest, you can't actually say you like statistics though, right? Come on. (laughs) Who's who's forcing you to say that? Who's forcing you to say you like statistics? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Honestly, I feel like that's another aspect of a lot of people who go into audiology are very interested in science. I'm, I'm speaking for myself. I'm saying a lot of people, I'm just literally talking about myself right now. They go into it because they're really interested in science and technology and working with people. But, but the math side of things, the statistics side of things, 
maybe not their favorite thing in the world. And so that's why they kind of avoid the research side. What was that experience like for you? Are you one of those math kind of centered people? Or is that something that you had to kind of pick up as you go and learn to appreciate, I guess, is a good way to put it? <laughs> you know, I I always liked math as a kid, though I certainly, you know, never was good enough at it to consider being a math major or anything like that. In terms of statistics, it's something that's taken me a, a number of years to to get, I will say competent at. I certainly wouldn't certainly call myself good at, but competent enough to to feel confident in in what I'm putting out there. And there were some things that helped. Um, one of which was I did take a statistics class in my uh, as part of my AUD. I was able to take an elective, and so I took a statistics class just through the, the general university. So that was helpful. Um, and then just experience over time, going through it. A lot of times, I think people are intimidated by statistics because it's very abstract. But when you actually have data in front of you, when you're sitting there with, you know, for example, like a list of patient ages and a list of of their speech perception scores, and you want to see if the two are related to each other, it's it actually becomes pretty straightforward to think about what sort of test do I need to do to to see if that is there. And I would go ahead and posit that I think. Most clinical audiologists have both intuitions about what variables are related. So, example, age and, and, and performance with an implant. And they also have questions. They wonder, well, hey, I've seen a lot of patients who are old and they're not doing very well. I wonder if there's a relationship there. And so I think it actually comes a lot more naturally when you have real data in front of you that you care about. That's a really, really great point. I think it's a good reminder to the students out there who might be struggling through that class that the the very like alien feeling variables and numbers that you're trying to learn right now, if you could just take a second, maybe find an article in a topic that you're interested in, whether it's cochlear implants or otherwise, that use the same statistical model or whatever. You know, I mean, I, I don't even want to try to like think about like variance and that stuff, right? I'm really not trying to have a PTSD flashback, but I think... I think you're exactly right that like applying it to something real really helps to formulate those connections and audiologists like relationships with patients. You know, we like building up, we like investing in those relationships. And this is just a different version of that. It's a relationship between data with outcome and intervention. I, I really think that's a really helpful insight. Thank you for making statistics not so scary. <laughs> <laughs> the last point I'll make about it too, is that I think people think about statistics and they think, you know, very big, complicated models. And they think about like AI and machine learning and all these like buzzwords that you hear nowadays. And there are certainly some people in our field who use those, but to be frank, the majority of what I do is really basic, simple statistics. And so if you can just kind of master like a couple things, you can actually do the vast majority of, of what you need to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And when there's times I don't know things, I have people in, in my department who I can ask. We have a statistician. I have people who have PhDs I can work with. It's certainly not all on my shoulders to, to know everything. I think you're going to share a lot of reassuring information who, for people who might be interested in this, but that might be the biggest one right there. <laughs> like there are people who specifically focus on this. It's not all on you. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So actually let's, speaking of those people who might be interested, let's say there's a current clinician out there, they're in a private practice, they're in a hospital setting, wherever. And they're like, okay, I can't just like leave my job and go find a research audiology position. Are there ways for people to participate 
in research or something like it, just like where they are currently? Yeah, absolutely. I think most audiologists, whether they realize it or not, are curious about things that they see in their everyday lives and in their everyday clinical practice. And so I think a good place to start is just to to write down some of those questions and think about how you might go about you know, using the data that you have in your clinic to answer them. This is probably a good time for me to talk about RAISIN too, which is our research audiologist information support network, which is a uh, relatively new group that we have to try and support research audiologists, but also to support all audiologists who are interested in doing research. Um, we do a lot of networking and outreach um, and, and webinars on on research and things like that. But one of the the services that we offer is sort of like um, a researcher-clinician connection. So we, we actually want to try to encourage clinicians who might be interested in research to pair up with people who do research full-time like myself. And we can actually form relationships where they can help kind of get their feet wet and get Get, get involved in research without having to do a lot of the, the heavy lifting that I have to do on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and there's also other groups like through ASHA and, and other audiology networks and things like that that support this as well. Yeah, that's great. I was really hoping we'd have some time to talk about Raisin a little bit. And this is, I guess, a great time to bring that up. So I want to finish this thought first when it comes to where people are currently and the idea of incorporating some research in that way. Do you, are you familiar with any projects that like came out of a small clinic like that? Or I know sometimes manufacturers will team up with, you know, smaller centers or private practices in terms of their data collection and things like that. So does that seem to be the number one way that not primarily research-focused clinicians can dabble in that world, you think? I think so. I think manufacturer funding is always something to consider. It certainly can be a slippery slope depending on what exactly they are asking you to do. But it's definitely a way to get involved and, and again, get your feet wet in, in research. Obviously, if you're at a hospital or a clinic that has a relationship with a university, it's a lot easier. But if you're by yourself in private practice, I think just kind of exploring things a little bit on your own or or trying to make a connection with a researcher and kind of get a mentor essentially is probably the best way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really good advice. I hadn't thought about that. Like, I know when we talk about raising it a little bit here and how you guys can partner up that way, that's that's a great way to do it. Because if you're curious in this world, there's somebody out there who knows a lot and who's willing to share that information with you, you know, and that's that's a great place to get it started. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, I have uh, an idea for something that I actually can't implement because I don't have um, the population to do it. For for example, like I don't happen to actually see a lot of Spanish speaking patients in our clinic. We, we actually see the majority second language is Yiddish in, at NYU. So if I had a study that I really wanted to do with Spanish-speaking patients, I would need to find a clinic somewhere that, that could do that. And so one option might be to find a private practice that is able to have a big Spanish-speaking population and, and partner with them. Wow, that's a really good point. That's really cool. So I guess, yeah, even if you're in a private practice setting and you aren't doing really any research at this point, you could be a great pipeline in terms of participants and, you know, collaborating in that way. So that's really, really cool. Okay. So let's, let's get back to Raisin a little bit then. Uh, like where did that idea come from and what kind of uh, things have you guys accomplished so far? Yeah. So I think Raisin really came out of the need 
to just have more information out there about what research audiology is and and who a research audiologist is. I know when I was uh, in school and looking at it, which really wasn't even that long ago, there's just so little information about what a research audiologist does on a day-to-day basis. Like we've talked about a little bit, there's a lot of misconceptions about what you actually need to know or what degree you need to have. And I think I could have certainly really benefited from some guidance that we're now able to offer through Raisin so that it was really sort of born out of this need to both provide more information and also create a community of research audiologists. We're, we're a pretty small bunch relatively. There's probably a few hundred of us in, in the country. Um, so just trying to create sort of a, a little mini professional network and, and support for, for research audiologists as well. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm really excited to see that. And just in the last week or two, I was browsing through the Facebook page and all of the webinars are so cool and just so many different professionals and like really different research role. Well, I guess they're not necessarily really different research, although that is probably true, but really more like researching very different things, you know? And I think that's a really cool way to expose people to see not all of these people are PhDs, first of all. And second of all, they are all looking into really, really different topics. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a website now too. Uh, our Facebook page is, is active as well, but we, we also have a website where we have kind of a lot of resources uh, in a more organized fashion and, and links to, to the webinars and things like that. So I, we can definitely maybe put a link to the, the website. Oh yeah, definitely. And, like that and help people, help people find that. But yeah, absolutely. I'm curious what your goals are moving forward with Raisin. Yeah, so we we kind of have a few different arms that we're working on. The biggest one that's coming up is we're actually going to have a, our big annual fall webinar on October 12th, um, and that's going to be on designing and delivering effective scientific presentations, which I think is a really important skill for everybody, um, clinicians and, and researchers included. And so I'm really excited to, to see that. We also have a lot of academic outreach options going on. So we are basically encouraging AUD programs or undergrads as well to contact us. And we um, provide like a a one hour or however long session with their students and just provide some information about research audiology and research audiology careers to AUD students. And just, again, give them that information that I think that is lacking in a general AUD program. So we're doing a lot of academic outreach with different universities. And then again, just um, our our website where we have some tips on, you know, how to apply. We're going to have some, some in- more information on how to apply for funding, how to, um, you know, craft a resume, um, services for for uh, again, clinicians wanting to partner with research audiologists. The, the goal is to just kind of build it up further and continue to do that. Yeah, that's so great. That's so great and so needed. I love the the idea of just connecting people well and establishing probably coming out of that is going to be some mentorship. There's an episode that we did about a year ago with Dr. Erin Piker. She's a former professor of mine. She's a dual AUD PhD. And we just talked about how important all undergrads who who want to go into audiology, how important it is at an undergrad level to try to get involved in research in some capacity because the skills that you get there are so important. And I think what Raisin is doing to connect with universities and then connect audiologists with each other and then maybe students to researchers is just going to be vital in making sure people better understand evidence-based care, making them more interested in research, maybe a little bit more literate when it comes to being able to decipher like the massive amount of literature that there seems to be all the time, which is a good thing, which is a good thing, but it is a skill that's definitely very much needed. And I think you guys are doing great work to get us there. Absolutely. I mean, I think 
every clinician, whether or not they are even have, whether or not they never want to touch research needs to be scientifically literate. They need to be able to take an article, take several articles and synthesize that information and stay up to date. I don't think you can rely exclusively on, you know, your CEUs to, to keep you perfectly up to date. It's important to be able to know what's going on in our field and our literature and, and, stay current on that. I think our patients deserve that and they want that. Absolutely. That's a that's a great point. And I'm, I'm really appreciative of you guys and you representing them <laughs> uh, and, and all the work that y'all are doing. Um, so when it comes to this kind of clinician that we're thinking of who might not be in a research role, and we'll come to students in a minute here too, because I know they probably are listening in. Um, for current clinicians who might be interested in a research role, let's say one pops up on you know LinkedIn or whatever, how what, what kind of experience should they be can, like pursuing now to be competitive in that world where there might be people who already have a research background. I know we talked about there aren't that many AUD PhDs, but maybe this, there's that one person applying. Like, What could they be doing now to seem competitive for a role like that, even though they don't have much background in research? Well, I think there's a number of things. I think there's some particular skills that you can highlight on your resume that are really relevant to a research audiologist job, mainly like organization and protocol writing and data collection. So I think, you know, these are things that a lot of clinicians have to do for their jobs anyways, but but highlighting your skills there is something that's really important to research and, and might make you a better candidate. Like I said, we we have research audiologists on our team who who had no research experience going into it. I think what really makes you a good research audiologist is being able to be personable, to be able to explain difficult concepts, to be, have a really good grasp on what it is you you know and you're talking about, and then you know to again be organized and be to be organized and to be able to execute a protocol effectively, right? So a lot of times we are doing the same thing over or over and over again, both in clinic and in, and in research. But in research, it's really important that we do it exactly the same every time, right? I want to make sure that um, patient A gets the same exact experimental protocol as patient B. So I think being able to to show your organization skills and show your ability to to do that is is a really great skill for a clinical audiologist who might be trying to get into research. That's a great point. Do you where do you find that most of these positions come from? Is it from university settings? I know manufacturers oftentimes will hire research audiologists in that kind of capacity. Where where are those jobs really coming from? I would say probably two or three main sources. Academic, excuse me, let me just say that again. So there's probably two or three main sources. Academic positions are the most common because that tends to be where the the PhD research are, researchers are, and so they they are generally the ones designing experiments and writing grants that involve research audiologist work. Another common one is is with manufacturers. That job tends to look a little bit different than it does um, for academic research audiologists, mainly that, you know, of course, they're only working on one particular product um, the, and they are guided in terms of the research by what the, the interests of the manufacturer are in terms of uh, making money for, for lack of a better word. And then I think the third sort of big area is is, in, is with the VA. So the VA actually has a, a big research audiology program um, at uh, NCRAR in Portland, Oregon, as well as a number of other places around the country. Um, and they do a lot of research that's 
of course, very veteran focused, but has has a lot of broader implications too. Very cool. Very cool. So there's, I mean, there's, it sounds like there's a lot out there then. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to get involved. And those, again, those are the main ones. There's, there's others too. Okay. So this is the, the big scary word that I wanted to ask about when it comes to research is this idea of funding and being, and relying on funding in some way. I'm curious because you didn't have a PhD background where I'm sure there's probably a lot of discussion about that. And how do you get it? And how does that work? How did you transition into like, it's very different going from like a billing insurance sort of model of payment to maybe relying on grants or funding in some capacity. What was that transition like for you? Yeah. So it's definitely a bit scary. I will say that. And there's a number of different ways that research audiologists make it work. In my situation, I'm supported by grants that are awarded to the PhD researchers I work with. So essentially, they write grants. And on those grant projects, there is funding for a research audiologist because the experiments that are getting funded require a research audiologist to carry them out. Um, And I think that's probably the most common way that research audiologists get funded in an academic setting. Obviously, in an industry manufacturer setting, it's the the manufacturer choosing to put money into R&D and and hire a research audiologist to do that there. The VA also actually has a grant system as well. But it's really kind of an interesting position. Most research audiologists, again, because we're not the ones directly applying for the funding most of the time, that's not always the case. And we can definitely talk about that in a minute. But because we're often relying on that PhD to have funding for us, it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? So (laughs) you don't have to worry about it yourself. Most research audiologists are not involved in in grant writing, or if they are, they're they're in an assisting role where they're helping edit or helping collect pilot data for a grant, but they're not bearing the brunt, bearing the big weight of writing the grant themselves. So it's nice that I don't have to think about that on a daily basis. But at the same time, you are sort of um, relying on someone else to provide your funding for you. And if that funding doesn't come through for whatever reason, which is common because grants are hard to get, um, then you can sometimes be in a a precarious position job-wise. So a lot of research audiologists will do things to kind of help themselves out. Either they'll work part-time in multiple labs so that they're not just reliant on one funding source, or they'll negotiate with their department in order to have some department funding for their position. Or lastly, uh, some research audiologists choose to do sort of like a hybrid clinical research position, where they actually um, work a few days in clinic and then work a few days in research. And then basically the the hospital or whatever it is kind of decides, you know, uses the the money from clinic to help pay for the research. That's really cool. I'm so glad that you shared that because those are all really different ways for that job to be sustained, but all really interesting. And I didn't even realize that. I hadn't thought about the ways that they can, it doesn't all have to be one grant that you're living off of, right? You can have like multiple things that you're a part of. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's the way a lot of people do it in order to, um, A, because one grant may not be enough for a full-time job. So you may actually sort of, in order to cobble together a, a full-time position, you may be on part-time on one grant and you know 20% on another grant, that kind of thing. But it's also a way to get to be involved in, in multiple projects too. That's so cool. Yeah. So currently, do you work on multiple projects or are you just with one project mostly? I do. I do. So I, I sort of have two, two main hats that I wear. Um, the first one is more of a traditional 
I won't call it basic science because it is human subjects research, but more traditional manipulating uh, parameters of cochlear implant sound processing and looking at clinical outcomes and things like that. And uh, so I do that part of the time. And then the other part of the time is kind of focused on these retrospective studies where we're looking at longitudinal data and looking at data from patients over the course of many years in, in their charts and things like that to find relationships and about cochlear implant outcomes. And then most recently, I've started kind of branching out a little bit and doing some work of my own on um, electroacoustic hearing. So we call that EAS and uh, hearing preservation, as well as and, and looking at outcomes for those types of patients. Very cool. Very cool. I can say personally that my patients who utilize an EAS component are most of the time very, very happy. <laughs> the only time they aren't is when they're just like, I just don't like having something in my ear. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> well, if that's the problem here. We actually published an article about that last year uh, where we looked at, uh, we called it acceptance of EAS, acceptance and benefit. And so, you know, there's really two kind of sides to that. Um, essentially, the there's, at least in our study, we were able to have hearing preservation in about uh, 60 to 70% of patients, but only about half of them actually chose to wear EAS because of complaints like that. They they didn't want to have something in their ear. They wanted an off-the-ear processor, things like that. And so um, we looked at if to see if there were any differences in terms of whether they preserved hearing or not, or any differences in terms of whether they if they did preserve hearing, whether they wore EAS or not, if they did differently. That's all, I'm going to have to have you send me that article. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, happy to. Probably a really good counseling tool too. Okay, so another question, just sort of about like this the the landscape of audiologists working in research. So, in your time in this field, do you feel like you've seen any change in that? Like. Um, and that's, it's kind of a broad question. I'm not even really sure I know what I'm asking you there, but it's just sort of like, I'm curious more in the big picture. Do you feel like, do you see more audiologists taking on roles in research or how do you see that shifting over time? Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm still relatively young in this field, but I, I think there has certainly been a shift even in my short time in terms of research audiologists being able to do more and more. And in terms of them, especially in terms of the funding situation, I think when I first started, it was absolutely unheard of for audiologists, uh, you know, who are not AUD PhDs to have funding, especially on their own. And I think over the years that has gotten more and more plausible, especially in terms of um, manufacturer funding or, or private grant funding, but even NIH, fund, NIH funding, I think is starting to be more open to the idea of, of AUDs who are who are able to have have grant funding. And I think I see more and more AUDs interested in research as well and, and being given more responsibility. You know, I think when this job as a research audiologist was first sort of conceived of, it was essentially like a glorified research assistant, really. <laughs> um, someone who was just, you know, sort of tasked with running the experiment, but not really given much else. And I think both that has shifted over the over time, but it's one of the really great things about the position is that you're you're sort of able to make it what you want it to make, be. You know, if you want to just be the glorified research assistant, there are people who do that and are perfectly happy doing that. And then there are people who want to do more and want to come up with experiments and want to be involved in data analysis and and manuscript writing and all of that. And I think the PhDs who are running the labs are a lot more open to that than they were even a few years ago. Yeah, that's a really great insight. It's it's fascinating how much that's changed in such a short amount of time. And it really, it sounds like it's 
you know, it's a good sign in terms of the future for people who are interested in this field that, you know, there's going to be a lot more autonomy, a lot more opportunity for that kind of thing. It's really, really cool. I think we see that in clinical audiology too, right? I think over the last last 20 years or, or whatnot, that, that clinical audiologists are, you know, more recognized for their ability to, to do more than just push buttons on an audiometer. Um, audiologists in general, I think, are, are stepping up a lot in terms of what they're able to do. That's a really good point. And it's cool to see that overlap there between the two. Um, transitioning a little bit to talk more about students who might be listening, um, whether they're undergrad or AUD students, what do you feel like they should be doing right now if they are, maybe they're in an AUD program that does not offer an AUD PhD component, um, but they're thinking they really want to pursue something in research, what should they be doing now uh, to prepare them for that after graduation? Yeah. So my program that I was in did not offer uh, a combined AUD PhD. It was, I would have had to do it sequentially. Uh, so I, I completely understand that that position. And I would say the, the biggest thing you can do is try to get involved in research. So try to find um, someone in, in your university who's doing audiology research and see if you can help out in their lab. I know how hard it is in an AUD program to have time for that. Um, you know, your schedule is really, really regimented and, and every hour it feels like you're supposed to be somewhere. Um, but I would encourage you to, to talk with your department administrators and talk with your your the professors in your department about it because I think most of the time, there's more flexibility than you realize. And there's a lot of ways that you can get involved in research, even if it's just an hour to a week that you have to, to come and observe or, or um, spend time in a lab is really beneficial and, and gives you a taste of, of what it's actually like. Um, there's also a really great program for AUD students that I don't think is publicized enough called the T35, which is um, an NIH program that actually provides funding for AUD students for a whole summer's worth of research. So you get a stipend for the whole summer to go and do research at, uh, there's a couple different sites. Boys Town Hospital is one that I did mine at, but there's others as well. And you get to just do research for the whole summer. And you can, if it's human subjects research, you can count that towards your clinical hours. So you're not losing out on, on clinical hour time, which is good. <laughs> um, and then they actually provide funding for you to go and present your work at the um, AAS American Auditory Society conference the following spring and, and have um, some networking with other T35 students. So I think that's also a really good opportunity if you can to take advantage of as an AUD student. Yeah, that's that's really really good advice. I actually had not heard of that before. So that's that's really awesome for students out there to be considering and to look into cuz wow, what a great opportunity to get to really get the full like gamut of a research experience. You conduct research, you go to a, a conference, you network with people, you go through a grant process. I mean, that's really really awesome. Yeah, it's a really really great experience that I think is really underutilized, which means that AUD students are good applicants, even if they don't have a lot of research experience, because I think it's something that is is not as well known as it should be. So I, I highly encourage people to apply for that. How cool. Um, so actually, this is a question I meant to ask you earlier, and I forgot to. So thinking of that, um, like the sort of presentation experience, I know a big part of, I mean, this isn't what all researchers do, but I, I, one of the things that I get to see them most is in those public facing roles where they're at conferences presenting research or you know doing talks through an online th we're doing this right now like you are um so i'm curious like how 
like a res- I know a lot of PhDs do that kind of thing, but how research audiologists play into the more presentation of data, uh, the more front-facing side of things. Because I feel like when it comes to like a Q&A component after a talk, as a clinical audiologist who is sort of digesting and understanding the research, it's always helpful for me if the person who I'm talking to also has that clinical knowledge of things. You know, they they get my questions when it comes to, well, if it was in the software like this, like, how does that work? Because they work with the patient, they know exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm curious how that has factored into your career as a research audiologist, just more like the conference presentation-y side of things. Yeah. I mean, I think it really varies from lab to lab. Some labs um, really just have the the PhD, the PI presenting the, the research, and some labs are uh, more open to the research audiologist presenting the research. Again, this, I think, is something that is changing a little bit with time. Um, but in my experience, I've been really fortunate to be able to always have the opportunity to present my research at conferences if I so choose to do so, um, either in poster format or or as a talk. And yeah, I absolutely agree that when you're able to answer questions and, and think about the clinical implications of what you're doing, it's really beneficial for your audience. I think a lot of times the, the research audiologist has the advantage there because they are familiar with how this is actually going to impact their patient. And they also were the one there collecting the data. You know, they they have a lot of intimate knowledge of what actually happened in the experiment and they're, they're better able to answer questions sometimes than the PhD who designed it, you know, in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good insight. Yeah. And it's cool that you get that opportunity. And it sounds like that's probably one of those things that might change more as the autonomy of the role kind of changes, um, sort of being that like public facing, you know, person when it comes to explaining the research that might be expanding too. Yeah. And I th- I think it's a really good opportunity to to learn as as a research audiologist, you know, especially, unfortunately, this is one of the, the hardest things about these virtual conferences we've been having is it's it's really difficult to just have conversations with people and, and, you know, talk about your research. And, and so in, in person conferences, sometimes I'll, we'll get new ideas or we'll get new insight into thinking about something in a way we hadn't thought about it before. Um, or sometimes somebody will, you know, poke a huge flaw in our, our argument and, and we, we didn't even see it and that's beneficial too. Um, so just that back and forth that you get with conferences is really helpful, I think, for for audiologists, research audiologists in particular to get. Absolutely. Um, and then, okay, so I kind of saved it for the end here because I w- didn't want to bog it down too early. But I know it can't all be sunshine and daisies in the world of research audiology. I asked you about some of the things you really liked, but what have you found to be you know, really challenging or one of the things that isn't so enjoyable in this role? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's all perfect. No, <laughs> well, maybe um, so, maybe so. I really do enjoy it for the most part. I think, let's see, what do I dislike? Sometimes recruiting patients for studies can be difficult. So, you know, having to uh, either approach patients after their clinical appointment or, you know, send out mass emails trying to get people to come in for studies, that can sometimes be a part of my job I don't love. Um or, you know, the thing everybody hates, paperwork, having to, you know, file reimbursements and, and uh, you know, paperwork through through the university and things like that. Um, but really, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to get to work on things I'm interested in every day and to be able to um, do them at the pace that, that makes sense for what they are and, and 
I, I really do love it. That's so good. That's so good. Way to turn that one around. I was looking for something, but no, I think that's really honest and fair. I'm curious um, what your current research is looking into. I know you said you you're, you kind of mentioned a few of the topics that you're looking at, but is there any uh, current stuff that you're excited about that you want to talk about a little bit? So like I said, we're doing some work on EAS and hearing preservation, looking at how do we best program an EAS processor, right? So I think this is a, clini- a question a lot of clinicians have is, is if I have a patient who has hearing preservation, what do I actually do with them? There's not a lot of good clinical guidance out there about how best to program a patient who has um, residual hearing. And a lot of times they don't like it. So, so why is that? Why do some patients seem to love it and do really well? And some patients seem to hate it. Uh, so we're looking into that both with adults and also with kids, because that's kind of a, a hot area right now. We're doing some work with SSD, so single-sided deafness, looking at um, how those patients adapt to having um, an electrical signal and a normal hearing ear and specifically how they listen to music. So we're really interested in learning more about why so many patients don't like music with their implant and why... Um, music is such a difficult signal for an implant to convey. And SSD patients are really great at at helping us answer that question because they can provide feedback about what things sound like in their normal hearing ear. Uh, So we're doing a lot of studies with with them. And yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, um, we've previously had Dr. Lisa Park on to talk about um, back when the uh, pediatric candidacy expanded. Um, and in the spring, I had I was able to attend a talk of hers here in South Carolina that was it was talking about EAS and sort of different fitting protocols. So it sounds like hopefully with your work and their work kind of, you know, expanding, we're going to have some really good clinical guidance here uh, in the future that, you know, can go in some textbooks and be, you know, a little bit more uh, rigid for that because yeah, you're definitely right. It's felt like, what is the best way to do this for a little while? So I'm excited to hear how that's all coming along. That's awesome. Um, and then what do you feel like would be a sort of like a dream project for you? Like where do your your biggest interests clinically and research combine? And if, you know, I think I asked this to a, a different researcher we had on, like regardless of the budget, like what would you do if you could do like that dream project? I would love to be able to do a retrospective project where we can use like all of our data. Right now, it's it's still a pretty um, manual process extracting data from from charts, and even even with electronic medical records, it's still pretty slow going to to get everything out. So so I would love to like just have some sort of somebody write in a, a computer program or an AI program to data mine all of this this data for me and be able to to look at thousands and thousands of patients. Um, that would be really really cool. Yeah, and so would you would you keep that into the world of cochlear implants? You think? Not necessarily. I'm really interested too in 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 people that have um, this this hybrid like hearing loss. So so really good hearing in the low frequencies and poor hearing in the high frequencies, and and how we choose. You know, what's the best electrode for these patients? Is is a CI the best choice for them? Again, if if they do preserve hearing, what what does that hearing actually do for them? So I would love to be able to include um, patients with hearing loss uh, of that type and, and other types as well. We sort of have this idea that the audiogram is probably not 
the best measure of how someone actually functions on a day-to-day basis. I think we all as clinicians have a bit of a sense of that, right? <laughs> you, you know, you see a patient who, you can see two patients who have the same exact audiogram and they function very differently. So there's got to be better ways at actually measuring what that residual hearing is is doing and and how the, the patient is able to use it. So I would love to be able to plan some sort of big study where I run a million different tests on on people and and try to figure that out a little more. Yeah. And I feel like there's been a huge uptick in those patients lately. I think it's with masks, with COVID, they got by so well with their lip reading and their low frequency hearing that, you know, they were just cruising for a really long time. And then once they lost that ability to lip read, everything just became a low frequency muffled mess, you know? That is really interesting. That's a great insight. I I hadn't thought about that, but you're probably right. There probably were a lot of people, especially people who had that congenitally, who had just been just been getting by with lip reading and and can't anymore. Yeah, I've personally seen a bunch. <laughs> I've, I've been doing a lot more EAS than I had previously. And I feel like that must be, there's got to be a connection there, right? Like what else is it, you know? Well, those people are definitely cochlear implant candidates. So if you see them, I, I certainly encourage you to uh, um, refer them for a CI re- referral. Uh, so I, yeah, I certainly encourage you to refer them for a CI evaluation. Is there any specific advice you would like to share with either Maybe you have a piece of advice you'd give to a current audiologist who might be interested in dabbling in this world or a student who is maybe interested in pursuing this. It can be different things for either group, I guess. <laughs> to the clinical audiologist, just not to be intimidated by it. You know, Again, just because you don't have any experience in this doesn't mean that to be able to do it, you have to know everything or learn everything. I think by partnering with, with a researcher or finding a mentor who's able to um, include you in their research is a really great way to get involved. Um, and we, we really desperately need clinicians to be involved in research too, right? This is, I think, the, the great um, asset that research audiologists have is we sort of have a foot in each world. We have this great clinical training. We know what those clinical issues are. We know that, you know, patients hate their EAS processors. Um, and we also have this research training to be able to design an experiment to try to figure out why. And I can only stay so involved in in clinic. I'm not there seeing patients every day. So I think clinicians really have this wonderful asset to bring where they are seeing these issues. They have questions. They're seeing patients on a day-to-day basis, and they're able to help researchers, even research audiologists, to to do better science. So I would encourage them and and say you're you're needed. (laughs) Um, You know, we really could use you. Um, and for students, you know, the, the idea is kind of the same. Um, just, just try to get involved in any way you can, even if it's only a very short experience, I think it's beneficial and you are able to get a sense of, you know, whether this is something you really like. I think a lot of times students reject research out of either fear or out of just unknown, just not knowing what, what it even is. And so by, by getting your feet wet and, and doing a little bit of research, you're able to to see if this is something you might like to do. Great advice. That's really solid. And I, I think you're right. In both groups, there is a little bit of a sense of fear that like it's it's too much or you're underprepared for it. But I, I feel like every audiologist I know is is really good at, you know, critically evaluating evidence reading articles. And I mean, one of my favorite group chats is my group of audiologists who just share an interesting article that they read. And I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. You know, so it's it's one of the things I really appreciate about 
our field is the blend of those two things. And like we we do have the skill set to work in this capacity. There's some new things that have to be learned for sure, but there's definitely you you've helped me realize there's definitely an interesting perspective audiologists can bring to the table when it comes to research. Absolutely. I mean, those skills in terms of synthesizing evidence and and putting pieces together are something clinical audiologists do on a day-to-day basis, right? You have to take all the pieces that your patient gives you and and come up with what a diagnosis and and that's certainly a, a skill we use in research too. So yeah, I think a lot of the skills are very transferable. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing all of this awesome information, especially Raisin. I'm so excited to see what you all do with that program, how well it connects people and just how a new generation of audiologists are just going to be so connected to each other, so involved in research, and we just have a better appreciation for it. So thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. I'm excited to get to promote Raisin and, and see, see where it takes us. If people wanted to connect with you specifically, or if they wanted to connect with Raisin, what's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, so the best way to connect with Raisin is our website, which we can give you a link to provide in the podcast. And I'm always reachable by email too. If people have questions, we can provide that as well. Well, Emily, it has been so great talking to you. And I am excited to see how Raisin grows and following along on y'all's adventure. Thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Awesome. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R. E-A-R.